Hi, and welcome to this latest podcast from 1914 to 1918war.com. So first of all, uh, sorry for the gap of a few weeks there. Um, Easter holidays and then kids being off school sick all got very complicated very quickly. In this episode, we'll be resuming our look at the use of Scarpa Flow as Britain's wartime harbour during the First World War. In other progress, over on the substack at 1914.1918.substack.com, I'm now running a weekly newsletter which just pulls together a few articles on the First World War and a look ahead of any of our anniversaries for the week ahead. Um, and sending that out weekly at the moment, just a bit of an experiment to see whether that's uh, something that the audience likes. You can sign up completely free over at uh, the Substack, 1914.1918.substack.com. So give it a go, you can always unsubscribe if you don't like it. Anyway, let's get on with the show. City of Ships, Part 2. Scarpa Flow. Britain's wartime anchorage during the First World War. Life in Scarpa. As the defences were developed, so did the life of the people in this remote harbour and the surrounding islands. Physically remote from the rest of the country, not all those arriving in the Orkneys arrived on warships. There was a steady flow of men going on or returning from leave or travelling for other purposes. Those needing to get to and from Scarpa Flow travelled via interminable and cramped rail journeys on special trains christened Jellicoes, after the commander of the Grand Fleet. These journeys were an endurance test in themselves, taking three days to travel north from London. As one passenger, Albert Excel, put it, In the afternoon, and more particularly at night, the whole train was strewn with bodies trying to sleep. The air was dense with smoke and smelt more like a ship's bilges than a train. Little or no heat was provided by the train, and it was a case of putting up with any discomfort to stay warm. Another traveller recalled living on pies for three days, and many recalled the lack of stops and having to urinate out of the train's windows. Many joked that you didn't dare put your head out the window because of the spray. After the delights of the overland rail journey, the final part of the journey across the Pentland Firth presented a final trial. This stretch of water, running over the top of Scotland, was famous for its turbulent currents caused by the North Sea and North Atlantic coming together in a relatively narrow stretch of water. Old hands joked that there was more vomit in the water here than anywhere else in the world. For those who survived the journey north, the sight of the fleet in its harbour didn't disappoint. John West Beardsley wrote, The scene filled me with pride. The mighty array of the Grand Fleet gave me a sense of security. Squadrons lay in lines, with the flagship heading each line. Almost in the centre of the flow lay the formidable Iron Duke, flagship of the C&C, Jellicoe. For the men on the ships, local produce was added to the diet. Seagulls were often killed and turned into stew, which tasted like fishy chicken, 
but which was pleasant, firm-fleshed and certainly edible. And the Navy's divers, who were required to keep their skills up to date, used their time underwater to catch scallops, which could be used to add to the variety of the diet. With thousands of men in a remote place, there was a need to entertain people. With thousands of men living on board, entertainment tended to be focused inwardly on the ships, which operated like small self-contained towns. Games, dances, music, storytelling and illegal gambling filled the hours when the men were not working. Walks on the deck were popular, with occasional displays from the northern lights to enliven long winter nights when the weather was good enough. Within Scarpa Flow, two ships were devoted to the morale of the men of the fleet. SS Borodino was an army and navy stores ship which acted like a floating supermarket. As the Borodino made its rounds, sailors could purchase anything, and I quote, from an elephant to a shirt button. SS Gurkha was a more ambitious proposition. A former merchant ship, she had had her holds hollowed out to create a floating theatre. The stage was fitted out like a genuine theatre, complete with full stage, lighting rig and costume store that was available for concert parties from ships to put on shows. When the theatre was required, it simply moored alongside one of the ships, allowing the crew to board. In the event of operational needs intruding, the Gurkha simply slipped away, allowing the warship to get back to work. Sometimes the show can't go on. Scarpa Flow differed from other fleet bases, in that the entertainment to be found ashore lacked the variety of other harbours. Only the capital of the Orkneys, Kirkwall, had any of the amenities of a large town, and this was only accessible to officers and petty officers. Even then, the pubs only served beer and wine. Acknowledging the dearth of entertainment for the average sailors, other diversions were provided. Sailing, rowing regattas and other healthy sporting activities such as cross-country running filled the gaps left by cinemas, pubs, dances and the pursuit of women. Although I imagine no one asked the men which of those they would have preferred. It seems to me that the strategy was very much like a, a lively dog. A, a tired sailor is a good sailor. Boxing provided a suitably martial sport and was encouraged, attracting huge crowds to see champions from different ships slug it out amid huge inter-ship rivalries. The island of Flotta provided the only level ground suitable for playing football and, with each large ship capable of supporting ten or so teams, there was no shortage of opponents, although weather conditions were often bad enough that modern-day matches would have been called off long before the final whistle was blown. For the officers, a golf course was created, which Admiral Jellicoe himself used. But it wasn't all fun and games. The men in Scarpa Flow were there for a deadly purpose. Beyond the day-to-day -day life of limited shore leave, shipboard routine and entertainments, the serious business of war continued. The German naval strategy was to try to defeat parts of the Royal Navy by staging provocative raids on British coastal towns, hoping to lure out small sections of the British Navy for piecemeal defeat. Once enough of the British fleet had been destroyed, the German Navy could defeat them in the main battle. Various raids, notably resulting in the Battle of Dogger Bank, took place as a part of this, this strategy, but it was never really successful. However, in 1916, with changes to the German naval leadership, a more aggressive approach emerged, resulting in the Battle of Jutland. Since the beginning of the war, 
the readiness of the Grand Fleet had been tested with numerous false alarms, each of which necessitated putting the fleet to sea, only to recall them with a sense of anticlimax. However, on the 31st of May, 1916, word came from the Admiralty that it appeared that the German High Seas Fleet was likely to put to sea. The Battle of Jutland was a confused encounter, which represented the peak of naval operations in the First World War. The battle relegated the German fleet to the safety of its ports for the remainder of the war, but it inflicted a heavy death toll on the British fleet. After the engagement, the battered and bruised British fleet returned to Scarpa Flow. The sight of the returning fleet struck one witness hard. It was about 4am. It was a sad sight. No flags flying, no bands playing, but some battleships with their 12-inch guns cocked in the air, some of them with covers over the places where they'd been hit, especially the cruiser and destroyers who I believe had many dead on board. The British forces had suffered at Jutland, with 6,784 men killed during the brief but violent action, many of them lost at sea. However, a few casualties were buried on the island of Hoy in coffins that had been hurriedly constructed by dockyard staff working through the night as news of the battle came in. While these deaths represented the greatest naval losses in a single action of the First World War, a single death, just a few days after Jutland, sent reverberations through the nation. Lord Kitchener, the British Secretary of State for War, was ordered to Russia as head of a British military mission to stiffen Russia's faltering military effort. He decided, in his role as Britain's most senior soldier, to visit the Grand Fleet at Scarpa Flow before embarking on the cruiser HMS Hampshire for the journey to Russia's Arctic port at Archangel. Feeling unable to delay his mission to wait for better weather, the Hampshire set off in heavy seas and was forced to take the sheltered western route instead of the more usual eastern route that had been swept clear of mines. In heavy seas, Captain Saville, commanding the Hampshire, ordered his destroyer escort back to Scarpa Flow so that he could make better speed, unencumbered by the slower smaller ships. Disaster struck when the Hampshire struck a German sea mine and sunk along with most of her crew, including Britain's most famous soldier, whose body was never recovered, despite a search that recovered many other bodies from the sea. Only 12 sailors survived the disaster, somehow getting to the shore and seeking help from local crofters. A memorial to Lord Kitchener now stands overlooking the place where the Hampshire was lost. The defences deployed to protect the anchorage meant that the threat from enemy action was greatly reduced, but other dangers remained. On the 9th of July 1917, HMS Vanguard, a 20,000 tonne dreadnought battleship, was lost with 843 men when her main magazine exploded, tearing the ship apart. Despite being dark, a few witnesses saw the ship's final moments. I observed that one of the ships appeared to lose its true outline and quiver. It then appeared to lift up in the middle, and from this point there rose a vast column of orange-brown and slate-grey smoke. This immediately burst into a flickering pillar of fire which cast a crimson glow over the whole anchorage. Up to this point, the silence of the flow was unbroken, although a slight tremor had run through the earth. The pillar of fire mushroomed out, and in its light, debris could be seen travelling upwards. This spectacle lasted for five more seconds, 
The silence was shattered by the sound of a terrific explosion. The ship was about five miles distant, but the shockwave, which had taken about eleven seconds to reach me, was heavy enough to momentarily stop my breath. At first, in the darkness and the confusion, it was unclear which ship had been destroyed, and as rescue boats were sent on a futile search for survivors, a signaller's roll call across the fleet revealed the answer when Vanguard failed to respond. There were only three survivors from the ship itself, one of whom was to die shortly afterwards. However, a handful of men survived, mainly officers who'd had the good fortune of attending a concert party on the Gurkha that night. As the balance of power shifted in favour of the Entente powers later in the war, the Grand Fleet shifted its focus to routine sweeps of the North Sea in the forlorn hope that the German High Seas Fleet would come out and engage in battle. In the absence of an enemy, the huge dreadnoughts were largely redundant. Resting at anchor, their inaction presented a challenge for Beatty, the new commander since Jellicoe's promotion to First Sea Lord. How would he keep them at peak efficiency? The Navy's needs had shifted away from the capital ships to smaller ships acting as convoy escorts. Now the larger ships had to watch their smaller cousins going about their work while they stayed in Scarpa Flow. Towards the end of 1917, an American battle squadron joined the Grand Fleet at Scarpa Flow, becoming the 6th battle squadron. However, by now, the final stages of the war were beginning to play out in France and Belgium. And apart from convoy patrols, and a fruitless foray to catch the High Seas Fleet as it tried to intercept a convoy off the Norwegian coast, the sea war was over. Towards the end of the war, a last-ditch attempt by the German High Command to gamble the High Seas Fleet in a final throw of the dice foundered when the German fleet, in a mutinous mood, refused to set sail. The war ended without a final showdown when the armistice was signed in November 1918. It seemed that Scarpa Flow's war was over, but there was one more vital role for the harbour to play. Under the terms of the armistice, Germany's entire fleet was to be disarmed and moored in neutral ports. This included the great battleships of the High Seas Fleet, right the way down to boats that plied their trade on Germany's rivers. In reality, no neutral power wanted the German navy interned in their ports, with the responsibilities and costs that it would entail, so inevitably the fleet would be interned by the Entente powers. As senior naval partner, this meant that Britain would intern the German navy, and where better place to house a captive fleet but at Scarpa Flow. The German High Seas Fleet, led by their flagship Friedrich de Gross, and her great battle cruisers Seidlitz, Deflinger, Molke, von der Tann and Hindenburg set sail on the 19th of November, heading to their final encounter with the British. The Grand Fleet sent out 240 ships, all cleared for action in case of a final act of defiance, and escorted the Germans to the Firth of Forth. From here, the ships were inspected to ensure that the breech blocks had been removed from the guns, and then they were ordered to sail on to Scarpa Flow and internment. The first ships arrived on the 23rd of November, with the remainder arriving over the next four days. The bulk of the crews were returned to Germany, with only skeleton crews remaining on board to endure the Scottish winter. Conditions were harsh for the men left behind. They were prohibited from going ashore, 
or even to visit other German ships in the fleet. Under the terms of the internment, the British would only provide fresh water. All the food and drink for the German fleet had to be provided from Germany, and the quality of what they did receive was poor. The men supplemented their diet with fish and seagulls as the British had, and they engaged in illicit trade with some of the British picket ships for essentials such as tobacco and soap. And all the while, Vice Admiral von Reuter, commanding the interned fleet, awaited news of the final peace treaty that would decide the fate of his ships. Interned in a hostile powers harbour and starved of genuine news from Germany, von Reuter was acutely aware of his responsibility towards the German government as peace treaty negotiations continued. Reuter foresaw three scenarios. Continued negotiations, in which case the fleet was a valuable bargaining piece, completion of the peace treaty, in which case he must do whatever the terms dictated, or Germany might reject the treaty outright and resume hostilities, in which case von Reuter must somehow save the fleet from the clutches of the enemy and escape to serve his country. The latter scenario concerned him the most as he feared that, should hostilities resume, the British would waste no time capturing the fleet to prevent it from being a part of any future conflict. In line with his standing orders from 1914 that all ships put out of action must never fall into enemy hands, von Reuter made his plans. Working from accounts in the Times newspaper, he determined that the armistice was coming to an end on or around the 21st of June 1919. Perceiving unusual activity amongst the British fleet, which were in fact routine training exercises, he put his plan into action at 10.40am, giving the order to scuttle the fleet to prevent it falling into enemy hands. The Friedrich de Grosse began to list shortly afterwards, and then capsized and sank. Across Scarpa Flow, German ships began to sink with their flags hoisted defiantly for the occasion. The crews abandoned their ships and were taken aboard British vessels, many of them singing patriotic anthems and cheering at the success of their plan. Despite an attempt by the British to board some ships and prevent the sinkings, only three destroyers were saved. Eight German sailors were killed in the scuttling, shot by British boarding parties who thought that they were showing resistance. They now lie buried in the Royal Navy Cemetery in Linus. Thus ended the final act of Scarpa Flo's role in the First World War. With the end of the war, so the fleet harbour became redundant, with the defensive booms dismantled towards the end of 1919 and the whole harbour abandoned in 1920. The German ships littering the shores and seabed, some still protruding above the surface, remained in place until salvage operations by commercial scrap metal companies began in 1924. This work continued until 1939 and a new war, when the harbour once more resumed its wartime role, interrupting work on the wreck of the Derflinger, which was to stay on the seabed until 1946, when work was continued. These days, Scarpa Flow has returned to a peacetime collection of islands, uh, but you can still see some remains of the uh, First World War uh, block ships around. That brings us to the end of our two-parter, A City of Ships, Scarpa Flow during the First World War. I do hope you've enjoyed it. It was fun to write a, a longer piece. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, next episode, we'll be back to our reading of Bruce Bairn's Father's Bullets and Billets. Uh, we're nearing the end of that uh, now. Thanks for listening. Bye.